0: Go ahead and grab a seat. If you have your Bibles with you, and I sure hope you do, I would invite you to take them out. And we are studying the Old Testament book, the wonderful Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And so you can go ahead and open to Habakkuk. Um, I'll say just a few words to give you a little extra time to get there, because it's a short guy and can be hard to find. But there's no shame in the game. The table of contents can work wonders. If you need a Bible, put your hand up. Craig, come around and put one in it. Um couple things. Uh, first of all, if, you, if you're if you new to Parkview East, uh, we do children's ministry a little different. So every other Sunday we have children's church. Um, this is not one of those Sundays. And so kids are kind of in here milling around and that's okay. There might be a few distractions, but that's okay. We love kids. And so we want to be okay with that, right? Um, we love families here at Parkview East. And I happen to notice that we have a recent family that's new. They're not new to Parkview East, but they are a new family. The Tuttles are in the house. The Tuttles. You want to stand up real quick? Carson, Natalie, give it up. Newlyweds. So why don't you, why don't you stay standing? I'm just going to pray for you guys real quick. Is that okay? They just got married, what is it, like a weekend? A little over a week? Like two, weeks. two weeks. Two weeks, you're right. Yeah. Let me go ahead and pray for you guys real quick, okay? Father God, thank you so much for Carson. Thank you for Natalie. Um, the way that you have brought them together, Lord, Um, the the love that you have given, um, not just that they have for one another, but, Lord, what they have for you. And our prayer for them is that you would use this marriage to grow them, Lord, to shape them into your image, Lord, and that you would put your glory and your name on display through their um, covenant relationship um, so that those who come in contact with them would get a glimpse um, of what your love is like, Lord. So I pray that you would draw them close together, Lord. I pray that you would just bless their marriage, bless their family. Well, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right. All right, so we're in Habakkuk. Um. What I want to do just real quick before we get, we're going to be looking at Habakkuk 2 verses 6 through 20 specifically this morning. And before we dive specifically into that chapter, um, I want to give you just a little bit of an overview, a summary of where we've gone so far. Take a quick peek of where we're heading next week, the last week that we study this book. Essentially what we're seeing throughout the book of Habakkuk, what we've seen so far, what we will see is the progression of a prophet. We see the development of a man of God. I don't know if any of you who do teaching or coaching on any level involved with any sort of instruction or formation of somebody other than yourself. It's one of the great joys of influencing other people is seeing their development, seeing them go from who they are to who they can and should be. It's one of the reasons why many people teach, why they coach. It's a great joy. And we actually see this very thing happen in the life of Of Habakkuk, we see throughout this book the progression of a prophet. At the very beginning of the book, it starts off essentially with Habakkuk asking a question. His question is simple God, what is happening with your people? As he surveys his people, God's people, he sees that they are characterized by things such as violence and iniquity, injustice. These are the things that characterize God's covenant people, the very children of God. They're supposed to be different from the rest of the world, but the problem is they look just like all the nations around them. Habakkuk has seen enough. So in verses, uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, he asks God, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Is your law, God, not accomplishing its purposes with your people? Will you do something about it, God? How can you tolerate injustice and wickedness, the spiritual decay decay of your people? Will you just stand there and watch it? God's response is, I am doing something about it, Habakkuk. In fact, I am doing something great. The Lord answers him by indicating that he cares about the concerns of the prophet. The concerns that Habakkuk brings before God, God cares about. He hears and he cares. His plea has not fallen on deaf ears. And God's response is simply, I am raising up the Babylonians to bring justice against my sinful people. We see this in verse 6 of chapter 1. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. The Babylonian kingdom, one of the greatest powers in the ancient world during this era, was but a tool in the hands of God to bring the discipline on the people of God. Well, as you might imagine, this causes Habakkuk, our boy Habakkuk, to ask another question. Right? Babylon, you have got to be kidding me. You Are using Babylon to discipline your people. This is supposed to bring me assurance and confidence in who you are and what you are doing. Look at verse 13, second half of 13. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Okay, I had a complaint about our people, but now my complaint is with what you're doing with the Babylonians. This is ridiculous. Babylon is more wicked than your people. How could you, a holy God, use such a wicked nation? At the end of chapter 1, Habakkuk assumes his position in the watch post, waiting to hear a word from the Lord, an explanation for his perceived tolerance of all the wickedness and injustice that is around him. What's God going to say Habakkuk demands an explanation, and he waits for it. Pastor John, last week, gave the first part of what God's response was that. And he ended it essentially with, centered it really around this wonderful verse, chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So John talked about what does what is God developing take that we should be taking heart that as we look at the injustice around us and it may cause us to doubt what's happening that actually we shouldn't allow the situations around us to cause doubt in us but rather we should use it as an opportunity to increase our faith and the one true living God and the second part of God's response is what we have before us this morning verses two sorry verses six through 20 this is known as the woe, you might see the heading above that, verse 6, the woe to the Chaldeans, woe to the Chaldeans. So ultimately, what is God accomplishing in this passage? Well, I'm going to go ahead and read it, I'll pray for us, and then we will look specifically at it. So, again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 20. It is a lengthy passage, but I'm going to read it, okay? Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. "'Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, "'to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. "'You have devised shame for your house "'by cutting off many peoples. "'You have forfeited your life. "'For the stone will cry out from the wall, "'and the beam from the woodwork respond. "'Woe to him who builds a town with blood "'and founds a city on iniquity.' "'Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts "'that people's labor merely for fire "'and nations weary themselves for nothing? "'For the earth will be filled "'with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord "'as the waters cover the sea. "'Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. "'You pour out your wrath and make them drunk "'in order to gaze at their nakedness. "'You will have your fill of shame instead of glory.' Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray right now that you would fill this place, Lord, and that you would allow your people, our hearts, to be silent before you and your word. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken. To us, this word, and I pray right now that you would allow this word, which we believe to be absolutely true and eternal, Lord. I would pray that you would take it and that you would write it on our very hearts. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, it doesn't take much effort to look at the world around us and see that there are constantly attempts of people who are trying to take shortcuts, trying to take glory without putting in the work. I mean, you could look at constant illustrations, whether it be in sports, whether it be on Wall Street, in Hollywood, or in politics. We are constantly surrounded and bombarded, honestly, weekly, even daily, with story after story after story, Of folks who want to put in no sweat, no work, and yet receive all the glory. Such is the case of Rosie Ruiz. Ran maybe you've heard of this individual. She ran the well, she won momentarily the nineteen eighty Boston Marathon. Right? She received, she crossed the finish line first by a large, great, great amount of uh, uh, distance between the next runner. And as she crossed the thing, they put her up on the pedestal and they hung the medal around her head. It wasn't long before people started to notice that Ms. Ruiz was missing something. She was not sweating. No sweat whatsoever was fallen from this woman. Her clothes were dry. People began to ask questions. How could she run this marathon and do so so fastly and yet be completely free of any sweat? No perspiration. How is that possible? Well, it wasn't long before people came forward and said, actually, I saw her today, but it wasn't on the course. Rather, it was on the train Right? What Ms. Ruiz did was she jumped in, she took the train, got just a little bit before the finish line, jumped in the race, and then finished it. Right? This was long before social media and all that type of stuff could bust her. Luckily, there were some folks that picked up and saw Right, Could you imagine if you were running that race how furious you would be in those moments where she was crowned to find out she did no work, yet she wanted to receive absolutely all the glory. You, my friend, would have felt rather cheated Well, this one choice speaks a great deal. What she did, not just her character. Could you imagine of who she was? Could you imagine how much more so it would speak if you found out that this person who won, who received all the glory, didn't just cheat, but knocked everybody down on the way to victory? Was ruthless with its competitors? Was unjust? Was wicked and was full of evilness? How much more would you despise that individual. Right? There are places all around us where we see the wicked, the perception that we see of reality is that the wicked constantly seem to be winning. Those who don't deserve the prize are constantly handed the prize. It bothers us. This is exactly what was bothering our boy Habakkuk. As he surveyed the land, Around him, he saw that the nations surrounding Judah, the the wickedness that characterized them, yet they seemed to be the ones winning. Habakkuk's problem was that evil was advancing. This is not how things were supposed to be. This perceived reality was causing him to call into question the very character of who God is. How could you, a good and a just God, how could you, a good and a just God, stand there and idly watch what is happening? Now, my question is, as we think about our context in our world, many of you are tempted to ask the exact same question. There is no shortage of places in our world where it appears as though wickedness is winning, Evil is advancing. This is not how things are supposed to be. Perhaps that reality is causing you to question God as well. If so, then you can relate with what God has to say this morning. Now, the tone so far has been like, unlike what you might expect to hear from a man of God, the tone of the book, right? From a prophet This is not how you would maybe expect him to approach and to communicate with God. It sounds less like a conversation, honestly, and more like a complaint. However, by the end of the book, we see a completely different posture. John gave us a sneak peek of that. Last week. And I'm going to do so again this morning. Just because I want you to see. I think it's absolutely critical for us to understand this morning. See how this book ends. I'll just read one quick line. Verse 18 of chapter 3. He starts off complaining. He is upset. He's listening to God. He's got a problem with what's happening. And how God doesn't seem to be responding like God should. Okay. By the end of the book. Verse 18 of chapter 3. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation we see a radically different tone from Habakkuk at the end of the book he has gone from somebody who is disagreeing with God disappointed disapproving of God disappointed by God to somebody who's absolutely at the end of chapter 3 delighted in God a radical radical shift has taken place in Habakkuk's heart question is that you should be asking as you see that, what has happened? What has caused Habakkuk to go from a man who purchased himself up on the watch post, waits to hear from God, is upset with how how things are going on, and disagrees with how God is running the show, to somebody who utterly delights in the Lord? What has happened to get him there? I'll tell you what has happened. Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20 is what has happened. At the end of chapter 2, Habakkuk's tone, his posture is radically different. And essentially, what God's message is to Habakkuk is simply this. What we will see this morning is that God, although it may look differently, God will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. He will not do it. He will not do it. How does God deal and respond with wickedness? We will see here in the next couple of verses. Three things we're going to see this morning. The first thing that we're going to see is that there are two ways to live your life. It's very clear that there are two ways in this text to live your life. The second thing that we're going to see God do with Habakkuk is expose the wickedness. Okay. And the third thing that we're going to see God tell Habakkuk, show Habakkuk, is that actually God has a wonderful, wonderful plan, okay? So the first thing is that there are actually two ways to live. In order to show this, I want to dip back into verse 4, because really, verse 4 of chapter 2 is absolutely the central verse of this book. Understanding this gives light on all the rest that will follow, It's the key to understanding chapters 2 and chapters 3. It's verse 4. I'll read it one more time. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament of the truth that there are actually only two ways to live your life. For the remaining portion of the book, these two ways of living are seen in stark contrast with one another. There is... One, on one hand, there is the way of faith. Faith in embracing the faith in who God is and what God has done. The alternative to that is the absolute opposite rejecting God, turning from faith, and living a life that is characterized with unbelief. And folks, even today we face those same two options a life that's marked by faith or a life that's marked By unbelief. And we are constantly, throughout human history, tempted to reject faith and pursue the alternate. What God shows in chapter two is what that looks like and what will happen as a result. Okay? Before we get there, now, this this idea of Babylon is, uh, again, a major empire, major dominating threat in the ancient Near East. But throughout the Bible, Babylon is more than just that. It's actually a byword for human rebellion against God. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, right? All the way to the call of Abraham, who's called from the land of Babylon, ultimately to a life marked by Faith. He's called from a life of unbelief to a life of faith and trusting in who God is. All the way through the Bible to the end of Revelation where you see Babylon becomes symbolic for the whole of humanity rebelling against God. And in between Babylon is always a picture of a refusal to live by faith in God. Opposite of a life of faith is a life that is puffed up that is swollen, that is filled with pride in oneself, and longs for one thing above all else, not faith in God, but in self. This is the world that Habakkuk lives in. And this, folks, is the world that we live in. Everything around us is trying to squeeze us into a mold that requires us to put faith in nobody but ourself. As you continue to read on, you see chapter 2 and chapter 3, two songs emerge, right? This 6 through 20, verses 6 through 20 is a first song. And ultimately what this first song does is it shows what a light, the life of the wicked looks like and what God will do with the life of the wicked. And chapter 3 is what the life of faith looks like. And these two paths are put in stark contrast with one another. As long as we live, we will constantly be tempted to choose the life of unbelief. There are two ways to live. Verses 6 through 20 show that God exposes wickedness. Now, what this is, like I said before, it's a taunt song. It's a song that's a taunt song. It's a poem of derision and scorn to taunt the downfall of an enemy. Not so unfamiliar in our culture as well spent my day yesterday at the baseball diamond and you heard one taunt song after another and I'm telling you boy they have changed since I was like 10 years old all right you really got to listen to figure out what they're even saying anymore but taunt songs are not totally unfamiliar with us right this idea of a woe there are five woes that we see in verses 6 through 20 has a kind of a double meaning in the Hebrew language it's a sorrow of mourning or a anger of a curse but ultimately what it is is it's a parody right? It's a, a, a song mocking the downfall of the Babylonian empire. It's neither sorrow nor is it mourning. Rather, it is a celebration marked by a song, which is exactly what the Lord is saying. Babylon's downfall will be the fest will be the festival for the rest of the world. Now, the structure of the passage is an analysis, one, of how faith in God looks, and two, sorry, how faith in God, um, how unbelief, and rejection of who God is, how that looks and manifests itself, and ultimately what God will do as a result. So what I want to do is just walk by each of these woes, just kind of fly by them real quick. Show you what the woe is saying. Maybe try to apply it a little bit to how we can maybe relate to it. right? And then ultimately show what God, how God responds to it. So the first woe we see is a woe in verses 6 through 8. It exposes the sin of personal greed. The Babylonians were guilty of ruthlessly plundering nations they conquered and taking what did not belong to them. We see it in verse 6. Woe to him who keeps up what is not his own and for how long? How long will people be taking what does not belong to them and hoarding it to keep for themselves? How long will that happen? Answer, as long as human history. The Babylonian tyrants are but an extreme example of how sinful human nature will always express itself. Everyone is tempted to always and only look out for themselves. Does this not explain much of our world today? The need for more and more by any means possible. What does God have to say he will do about it? What will God do about it? Look down in the verse. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. Ultimately, all injustice has within it the seeds of its own decay. And that's exactly what Babylon is going to see. As they have been plundering and hoarding from one nation to the next, ultimately, they themselves will be plundered as well. The sin of personal greed. I think much of our culture can relate specifically to this. Right? How much is enough of anything, of anything that you enjoy? At what point will you have enough of it that your heart will be content, right? When you give yourself to materialism and to consumerism, the answer is it never will happen. It never will, be, will happen, right? Your heart will continue to long for more and more and more when you fill it with that which cannot satisfy it exactly what happens when your heart is given over to personal greed. The next woe we see is exposes the sin of personal security. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Those whose greed has driven them to build on the ruins of the weak and vulnerable are now trying to set themselves above the danger and the uncertainty of a life that is consumed by materialism. But, of course, it cannot be done. They will never have enough, and their future status will never be Certain. There was a recent study uh, Boston, uh, Boston College put out, and for the first time, researchers uh, prompted the very rich people with fortunes in excess of $25 million to speak candidly about their lives. All of this money, north of $25 million, how does it make you feel? What's going on in your heart? The result is a surprising litany of anxieties and insecurities, their sense of isolation, their worries about work and love, and most of all, their fears for their children and the future. One man in the study identified as a Christian said his top aspirations in life are as follows, the Lord, his family, and his friends. Sounds pretty admirable, right? Follower of Jesus, the Lord, his family, and his friends. However, he also indicated on the same survey that he would not feel financially secure unless he had $1 billion in the bank. All right? So, it's unfortunate, but it's the reality. It's the reality, right? We live in a world that lifts money up as God. And our temptation is to remove our faith from God and to place our faith in all of the things that money can buy us. Right? But the truth is, you'll never have enough. Right? Right? And you'll always live your life insecure with what lies ahead. There was an advertisement in an issue of, of Super Yacht. Mike, do you still subscribe to Super Yacht? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. thought maybe you did. Um, and in this magazine, it presented a, a ship called Martha Ann. It was a 230-foot, $125 million boat, boasting a crew of 20, a master bedroom that was the size probably of this room, and an interior that was gaudy enough to make the Kardashians blush. One of the captions uh, that accompanied one of the lavish photos read this. From these lofty heights, the caption promised, guests will be able to look down on virtually any other yacht." Now, what the advertisement did is it played into the securities by leaving just the potential, virtually any other yacht. The potential that there might be somebody who docks next to you who has a yacht that looks down on yours. Right? The advertisement is playing into the insecurities of the rich. Once greed becomes the motivation in your life, honesty and integrity won't be around for long. The city built on oppression and injustice will not be safe. Even the stones and the beams, the passage says, by which the city is built will cry out against it. All of the security they have achieved will become unsecure. And they get a taste of their own medicine. Personal security. Third woe. Exposes the sin of personal power. Babylon had achieved its wealth and status in the world at the expense of subjugating other people. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Yet here we see the Lord's irresistible process is at work. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Power ultimately becomes the sole aim and the sole guide of all that is right and all that is wrong in the world. However, like money and materialism, those who run after it, those who give their lives to it, they will never have enough of it. There will be always somebody close by that has more power than they do. And it will just be a matter of time before they come and try to take it from them third woe well, exposes the sin of personal power. The fourth one, personal exploitation. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Babylon, in its imperial ambitions, made other nations drink from the metaphorical cup of anger, ultimately, is what it's saying. I'll read it real quick again. Woe well, to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The image of drunkenness is a powerful one as it speaks directly to the hideous nature of the Babylonians' imperial aggression. The oppressing force sought to exploit, sought to rape and ravish and systematically claim as their own anything of value that belonged to the nations that they conquered. For Babylon, other people ultimately served as objects to be exploited for their own personal satisfaction. History is filled with no shortage of examples where this exact same phenomenon takes place time and time again. From the transatlantic slave trade to the modern-day porn industry, all of these things are characterized by glorying in power over others As they see them people, those others, disposable before them. Cruelty and seduction are their trademarks. right? If you were to look at the mass casualties that happen across this world. Exploiting other people for their own benefit, their own satisfaction, their own pleasure. This is the power of the sin of personal exploitation. There's no shortages of it, but God won't stand for it. Their wickedness itself will be exposed. He will turn their glory into their shame. Look at verse sixteen and seventeen. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Ultimately, this is exactly what's going to happen to Babylon. They themselves will be exposed. They will be vulnerable and taken advantage of. The last thing we see in verses 18 through 19 is the sin of pagan idolatry. Look at it real quick. What, a, what prophet is an idol when, it makes, what it, when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So these idols, these lifeless creations at man's own hand, right, the, to some degree is the extreme form of of a life that is given over to faith apart from God, faith in anything but God. They've turned aside to creating their own images, their own carvings and statues, things that have zero breath, that cannot speak and say a word, and yet there they are. They stand, these silent idols, and these Babylonians would rather worship them than the one true living God lifeless materials, nothing but falsehood. They would prefer a dumb idol to a God who speaks. You can dress it up with whatever precious metals you want or jewels that you may have, but no matter how nice you make it, there will be no breath in it, and it will not speak. And what does God have to say about these idols? Will God just stand, stand there idly and watch as they give their lives to these statues, these figures? Will God not do anything? Will he allow this wickedness that characterizes an entire nation to allow these people to continue to advance across his earth? Is that what God will do? Is he just standing there? Watching, If you were to go through each one of these woes, each one of these sins, ultimately what it comes down to is a desire to exalt oneself above exalting God. Every one of these things is, a, is symptomatic of that problem. Putting faith and glory in yourself as opposed to the one true living God, even here in the sin of idolatry. What will God have to say about it? Will he do anything about it? Well, finally what we see is that God in the midst of this actually has a wonderful purpose that he is at work accomplishing in this world. What we see is that all human abuse of power and exaltation of self will ultimately bring God's judgment. And there's really two verses here that help us understand the nature of what God is up to. We see in verse 14 and verse 20. If you have your Bibles, I would direct your attention to verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters Cover the sea. It's really a remarkable statement. And if you look at this passage, you really have to look at a contrast. The contrast that he is putting down, not just with the two paths that we can take, but ultimately the two ways that things seem to be playing out. The only permanent resident on this earth is not the might of Babylon, nor is it the wealth or the influence of America, but it is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Take heart, Habakkuk. The earth may be filled with wickedness, may be characterized by violence and destruction, but it won't last for long. One day, all injustice and destruction will be rinsed from this earth and replaced with the knowledge of God's glory. The word glory here can be translated as weightiness or heaviness, The whole earth will be filled with the weightiness of who God is. Just as the seabed is covered by the waters, God's glory will one day fill the entire earth. So in verse 14, ultimately what God is telling Habakkuk to is to to look for a future hope. There is a future hope that will happen where all of the wickedness will be done away with and it will be replaced. This world will be filled with God's glory knowledge of who he is. When will this happen? Well, the immediate context, it is partially fulfilled when the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon. But in a much more, in a much different way, we see that that ultimately, so the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon, the, the, the uh, Persians have a different way of ruling, right? And so when the Persians come in, they allow Israel to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, and on some level, partially, this verse is fulfilled, right? God's glory comes to the temple again, and we see his purposes begin to be accomplished. Yet, there is a totally different future understanding of how God will accomplish this. It's a promise that's much more than that. It promises way more than what they have in store for them in Jerusalem. And if you go to, just real quick, Isaiah 11, this is where this verse first gets quoted. We first see this promise show itself in verse 11, one of Habakkuk's predecessors. They shall not utter or destroy and all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, in Isaiah chapter 11, this was in the context referring to the coming kingdom of the Messiah. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear. Of the Lord. Ultimately, what chapter 11 of Isaiah is telling us is this classic Old Testament language for a descendant that will come from King David. And this descendant will be unlike any king Israel has ever seen before. This descendant will bring with him a fullness of God's glory, will manifest God's glory in a way that the world has never seen. Look at verse 4 But the righteous he shall judge. Sorry, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. There will come a day where this promise won't just be partially fulfilled, but it will be fully fulfilled in the coming of Jesus himself. God's glory, his full goodness is seen supremely and ultimately in the figure, the the figure of that's greater than David. It's David's greater son, Jesus Himself. And there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The evil one himself will be cast into eternal fight. The entire world will be covered with the fullness of knowledge of God's glory. But what's awesome about this passage, what I love about Habakkuk chapter 2, is that there's not just a future hope, there's also a present reality that Habakkuk gets turned onto. And we see it finally in verse 20. But the Lord is in. His temple. If you look at verse 14, the earth will be filled. There is a future hope of what will happen. But verse 20 says, right now something is happening as well. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. As we assume a similar position as Habakkuk on the watchtower as we look out and survey our land and we see violence and injustice all around us, present in our country and in the nations of the world. Folks, we can be tempted to lose heart. We can be tempted to think that God has abandoned his plans and that we are without hope in this world. Verse 20 shows us why right now we should not lose hope. We should not abandon our faith altogether. The Lord is in his holy temple. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple, of course, was the structure in Jerusalem where God's presence was especially manifested. And that temple, that temple has long been destroyed. So for us as a new covenant people, for us today, the idea of the temple has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the temple, the location where we meet with God. For us, we recognize that God is enthroned in his son, Jesus, who is the Lord of all lords. Now, if you contrast, look at what's happening in verses 18 through 20. There's this beautiful contrast that's happening. The, the idols are lifeless. They are dumb. They cannot speak. There's no breath in them. Meanwhile, people are speaking to them. Arise. Awake. Right? But before God, it's the complete opposite. Before God, it's the complete opposite. He is in his holy temple. He is a God, a living God, who has breath, who does speak. And what's our response to be before him? Silence. See, the roles are radically reversed. In Jesus, the very word of God himself. We hear God speak, and he gives us hope, even when we look at the world around us, and we can make no sense of what's happening, the wickedness that characterizes it, the, the hopelessness that we can seem to feel. As we think of greed and security, and where our hearts long for those things, right? For power, and we make idols of things that are around us, things that we can make and that we can buy, that have no life, as our heart is drawn in that direction, Ultimately, God is calling us to stand before him, to listen to him speak, and to be drawn to a, a savior who completely reverses the wicked course of the world. He, he doesn't exalt himself, but rather humbles himself to death on a cross. This, this Jesus himself isn't given over to greed, but rather he gives his life for generosity. He became poor so that you and I can become rich. Instead of security by building a house away from harm, perching himself above all others, he comes to us, he sacrifices for us, leaving his home of comfort for the pain of the cross. Instead of a city that's built with power where every person sheds blood for selfish gain, this city that Jesus is making, this home that he is making, is is built by the shedding of his own blood with people from For people of all across the world, from every nation, instead of sexual exploitation, our our Savior Jesus is pure. And he invites us to live a life that is free from sexual sin, to forgive and to heal. Instead of idolatry in Christ, we have the true worship of a God who speaks and who is alive. And, folks, regardless of where you're coming from, maybe you think about the world, your life, the world around us, and you get frustrated like Habakkuk. The temptation will always be to think that God has given up. Ultimately, what God is doing with Habakkuk is he's picking his head up. He's saying, listen, Habakkuk, I have a greater plan than you have any idea of. He radically changes Habakkuk's perspective. And he can do the same for you and for me. What's awesome about God is that he hears Habakkuk's complaint, right? He hears Habakkuk's complaint. Now, there's there's different times in the Bible we are called specifically to fight against injustice, to fight against violence, but the message to Habakkuk is that ultimately that fight is won in Jesus Christ, right? And as a result, we can be a people who take heart because God will not stand idly and watch wickedness go unpunished. It's not the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I pray that you would help us be a people. Ultimately, Lord, I I thank you that Habakkuk looked out at the world, and he saw the sin that characterized it, and his response was hatred for that sin. He wanted to see you do something about it. Lord, this morning as we gather and as we worship you, Lord, we are reminded that you did do something about it. Lord, and it was nothing that anybody expected. Lord, you will not allow injustice and wickedness to go unpunished. Lord, and we thank you, Lord, that ultimately for all of us, salvation, the path of salvation, is one that comes through judgment, Lord. You poured your wrath out on your son. If he would endure the sins of the world, Father, that we might have life in communion with you. And so I pray just this morning that you would help us to reflect on that reality, Lord, that we would live under it, and that we would be encouraged by who you are and how you are working. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.